I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Gospel according to Luke chapter 1. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 1088. This year, as I was sort of preparing for Advent, I, uh, I usually try to think of some phrase that stands out that I just want to keep in mind throughout the season. And uh, this year, the phrase I chose was, The Weary World Rejoices. Um, it's from the song, O Holy Night. And I thought it would be a fitting theme for this year in particular, because uh, if we're being honest, this year has had its fair share of things that have exhausted us and wearied us in more ways than one. And uh, unlike the sort of pop culture version of, of Christmas, uh, Advent invites us to reckon with that weariness and that darkness. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till He appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. There is a darkness to that, isn't there? And yet there is light. Darkness and light, those are images that God Himself has given to us. 800 years before Jesus was born, God said through the prophet Isaiah, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And so this is, this is real hope and real joy, not the kind of hope and joy that, that come from ignoring how sad and dark the world can be. It's the kind of hope that says, that it's not the kind of hope that says, let's just, um, let's just look at these twinkly lights for a while and not think about the things in the world that are sad and wrong. The joy that Jesus came to bring is grounded on the fact that He came to confront what is wrong in the world. So the joy of Christmas does not ignore, it confronts oppression and poverty and darkness and calamities and even death. And it says Jesus has come to put an end to all of this. It says in this weak little child, God is displaying His power over sin and death and Satan. And so I want to show you that in Luke's account of the gospel this morning. We're, we're picking up right after Gabriel has just announced to Mary the birth of Jesus. So we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 1, verse 39. It says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. We'll pause there and let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for the fact that you in your wisdom uh, have chosen to tell us this story through your servant Luke. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us not to twist what you have said, not to misuse it or misapply it, but that we would humble ourselves under it. Spirit of God, that you would help us to hear it as you intended us to hear it and to apply it as you intended us to apply it. So help us now, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that, that stands out, um, sometimes it can be kind of instructive. These things are not inspired, but your Bible probably has headings over different paragraphs, over different sections. The Holy Spirit didn't breathe those out. Translators put them there to help us. But sometimes it can be helpful to just kind of look at them. And, uh, and you can kind of notice the big picture of what's happening. And in this case, I want you to notice something about the way that Luke tells this story, especially in the first chapter or two, that he alternates back and forth between the account of John's birth and of Jesus' birth. So it helps me to kind of visualize this. Luke is inviting us to compare the two. He starts with the announcement of John's birth to Zechariah, then he moves to the announcement of Jesus' birth to Mary. We'll skip over the passage that we're looking at today. At the end of chapter 1, he tells us about the birth of John. And then in chapter 2, he tells us about the birth of Jesus. And both accounts of their birth ends with, and the child grew and was strong in spirit and that sort of thing. So John wants us to, to see these two people. Excuse me, Luke wants us to see these two people, John and Jesus, and he wants us to compare them. So if you think about just the announcement of their birth. So Gabriel is sent by God to announce the birth of John to a righteous priest named Zechariah. And where was Zechariah when Gabriel found him? He was in the temple in Jerusalem. But glance back at verse 26. This is where Luke is now moving from the announcement of John's birth to Jesus, verse 26, in the sixth month, that is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So very similar, God sends Gabriel uh, to announce a birth, but Nazareth is a very long way, figuratively speaking, from Jerusalem. Nazareth was a podunk town, there's no other way to put it. It was a far cry from somewhere as special as the holy place inside the temple in Jerusalem. And rather than a priest, Gabriel is sent to an obscure, poor virgin named Mary. And so, rhetorical question, which of these two is the more significant birth? If that's all you knew... If all you knew was what I just told you, you would think, boy, that first one sounds a lot more special because there's a priest involved. It happens in the, in the temple in Jerusalem in this very 
special and holy place. And yet, John's birth is not the most significant, is it? And so simply by the way he tells us the story, Luke is helping us to see something that Mary says in her prayer, which we just read, that God has not chosen to do His greatest work through the wealthy or through the prominent or through the powerful. He has chosen instead to show the riches of His glory and strength through the poor and the obscure and the weak. God is bringing His presence into the world, not through the temple, but through the body of a virgin who will give birth to a son. Right here in the middle of chapter 1, these two stories of John and Jesus, they overlap. They intersect. They've been running in parallel, but now they intersect. And now you have Elizabeth, John's mother, and Mary, Jesus' mother, in the same place at the same time speaking to one another. At the end of Gabriel's announcement to Mary, he told her about Elizabeth having conceived a son in her old age. And Gabriel tells Mary about Elizabeth's pregnancy as evidence of the fact that, verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. That's why Gabriel tells Mary about Elizabeth. He says... In verse 36, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. So Gabriel knows, God knows that Mary needs a little help believing what she's been told, right? Because for, for, if you thought it was difficult for a barren woman to conceive, well... A virgin conceiving is, is infinitely more impossible. But nothing will be impossible with God. If you've been, uh, if you've been reading uh, our Advent devotional along with us this week, then you will have read this quote from Donald McLeod. He said, The virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas, and none of us must think of hurrying past it. And I just love that image of of the virgin birth being posted on guard, being uh, standing on the threshold, if you will, of the New Testament, letting us know that what God is about to do through His Son is something that humanity could never do on our own. It's almost as if... God has put two bookends on the the earthly life of Jesus. On one end, there is the virgin conception and birth, and on the other end, there is the resurrection and the ascension. And both of these things are completely miraculous, things that no human could ever do. And so it's as if to say God is, is saying to us, Everything that I'm doing through this person, everything that I'm doing through this child who is to be born, everything that I'm doing through this carpenter from Nazareth, Mankind cannot accomplish this. Flesh and blood cannot achieve the salvation that Jesus will bring. This is a divine work of God. If it were up to us, it would be impossible. But nothing will be impossible with God. That is the thought that drives Mary to go see Elizabeth. Gabriel tells her, nothing will be impossible with God. 
She responds, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Gabriel leaves, and the next thing she does is she goes. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And if we had to pick one word to describe Elizabeth's reaction to Mary's coming to her, I think it would be safe to use the word joy. Um, it extends even to John, who was still in the womb, and he leaps for joy in the womb of his mother. But Luke wants to make it clear that Elizabeth's response was prompted by the Spirit of God. It's not that she's just happy to see her relative, although I'm sure she was. But notice the middle of verse 41. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. This is a spirit-filled response. She exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Luke is the only gospel writer who tells us that Elizabeth said that. And I don't think it's an accident that Luke is also the only gospel writer who tells us about something that happened in, in Luke 11 where uh, Jesus is out among a crowd of people and a woman in the crowd says to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you. And what is Jesus' response to that? But he said, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So, blessed is the womb that bore you. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, that's only a knock against Mary if you don't know who Mary is. Because Mary was blessed in both ways. She was blessed in that God was doing this work through her body. Literally through her body, she was bearing into the world the Son of God. And yet, she was also blessed in that she heard the Word of God and kept it. Even here in Luke 1, where Elizabeth is, is joyfully blessing Mary, her blessing reaches its peak when she says in verse 45, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So the primary reason Mary is blessed is not because of anything within her. It's because she heard the word of God and she believed it. Her response again to Gabriel in verse 38 was, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That is the source of her blessing, that she humbled herself before the Lord and she delighted in His word being fulfilled through her. So Mary is worth glancing at. I want, I want you to think about the difference between a glance and a gaze. To glance is to take a, a quick look. You know, you glance at something, you, you sort of look at it, and then, in, and then you look away at something else. But to gaze is to, to stare. The gospel writers glance at Mary, just as they glance at Zechariah and Elizabeth and John and, and many others. It's not like Jesus is the only person in the story. 
And there are very important things we can learn from glancing at these people. There are important things we can take away from glancing at Zechariah and Elizabeth and John and Peter and Thomas and all these different people. Uh, one of the things we can take away from glancing at Mary is we can see that the way she was blessed, that kind of blessing is open to anyone. Of course, she was the only one who literally gave birth to, to the Messiah. That, that kind of blessing is not open to us. But the blessing of humbly submitting yourself to God's will, the blessing of joy in seeing God's word fulfilled, that kind of blessing is open to anyone. Anyone can do that. Anyone can humble themselves before the Lord and delight in seeing His Word fulfilled in their life. And if we really pay attention to Mary, if we really listen to what she says, then we're not going to keep gazing at her for too long. Because what she does is she says, essentially, don't look at me, I'm looking at the Lord. So if we're going to glance at, at Mary, then... If we, if we take an accurate look at her, then we're going to end up gazing at the Lord because that's what she invites us to do. So she arrives and, and Elizabeth just bursts out with this spirit-filled exclamation, this blessing of Mary. And Mary responds to that blessing with a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. Um, your, your Bible may have the heading there that calls this the Magnificat, which is a Latin word that means magnifies. It's the, the first word in the Latin translation of Mary's prayer. My soul magnifies the Lord. This prayer of praise and thanksgiving is on par with any psalm from the Old Testament. Um, it absolutely oozes with biblical language and themes. Uh, J.C. Ryle said of Mary, It is evident that the memory of the Blessed Virgin was stored with Scripture. She was familiar, whether by hearing or by reading, with the Old Testament, and so when out of the abundance of her heart her mouth spoke, she gave vent to her feelings in scriptural language. Moved by the Holy Spirit to break forth into praise, she chooses language which the Holy Spirit had already consecrated and used. So she is taking themes, sometimes taking almost verbatim phrases from the Old Testament, and she's incorporating them into this prayer. And, and by the way, just as kind of a side note, is it possible that Mary just spontaneously spoke this prayer? Maybe. Maybe she was so filled with the Spirit. Uh, it's also possible that Luke, Luke tells us there in verse 56 that she remained with Elizabeth for about three months, that is, until John was born, and then she went home. It's possible that she sat down sometime during that three months and, and thoughtfully penned this. Either way, what's important is that what she says is absolutely filled with biblical language and and her prayer her psalm if you want to call it that is especially reminiscent of of another prayer from another mother in the old testament in first samuel 2 a woman named hannah hannah actually has more in common with elizabeth than she does with mary because like elizabeth hannah had been barren she prayed God opened her womb and gave her a son named Samuel who became a mighty prophet of God. 
And in response to Samuel's birth, Hannah offers a prayer of thanksgiving in 1 Samuel 2. And here's what I want to do. Rather than having you turn to 1 Samuel 2, what I want you to do instead is I want you to look at Mary's prayer here in Luke 1, verses 46 through 55, and just kind of skim over it as I read some of Hannah's words from 1 Samuel 2, and I want you to see if you can hear some of the similarities. So I'm going to say the words of Hannah. You're going to be looking at Mary's words. My heart exults in the Lord because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. God opened Hannah's womb and she returned His mercy with praise. And that is what worship is. Worship is a response to what God has done. God shows mercy and we turn that mercy back into praise. God did what no man could do. And with Mary, God was doing an even greater work, opening the womb not only of a barren woman, but of a virgin. So our gaze needs to be fixed not on Mary, but on the God with whom nothing is impossible. And that's what Mary's prayer ought to lead us to do. So as we look at Mary's psalm, I want you to notice how God-centered it is. Even when she says that future generations will call her blessed, she makes clear that the reason for this is because the Mighty One has looked on her humble estate in holiness and mercy. That's why people will call her blessed, not because of her, but because of what God has done for her. In one of our uh, Advent devotionals this week, David Mathis pointed out how, how frequently God is the subject of these verbs. Notice, He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. He who is mighty has done great things for me. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God's the one who spoke this. God's the one who promised this. And God is the one who is doing all of this. And Mary especially points our gaze toward three aspects of God's character. His power, His holiness, and His mercy. His power, His holiness, and His mercy. And all three of those intersect in verses 49 and 50 where she says, For He who is mighty, there's power, has done great things for me, and holy is His name, and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. If you take away any one of those three characteristics of God, He's not God. If He's, if he's holy and merciful, but He's not powerful, then He's not God. If He's powerful and holy, but He's not merciful, He's not God. 
if he's powerful and merciful, but he's not holy, he's not God. The God of whom Mary speaks is a powerful, mighty God. Verse 51, she says, He has shown strength with His arm. Think about the Old Testament and how it speaks of God doing things at times with His finger, sometimes with His hand. He stretched out His hand. But it is the most special events that God is said to have done with His arm. It is the greatest show of His strength. And so what Mary is saying is that in sending His Son, God has not just used His finger, He's not just used His hand, He has shown strength with His arm. This is the greatest show of strength that God could possibly give us. And so in sending Christ, it's as if God has rolled up His sleeve and is about to flex His muscles. He has shown strength with His arm. But this God who is powerful and mighty is also holy and merciful, which is very good news for us because if He was just powerful and He wasn't holy and merciful, we would have every reason to be afraid. In fact, Mary demonstrates how God does not act the way we might expect Him to. The world of Mary's day and the world of our day says that human strength and wealth and power are signs of God's favor. But notice how Mary says that God has turned all of this on its head. She sums it up in verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And Mary includes herself among those of humble estate. She was not mighty. She was not powerful or wealthy. But God showed favor to her. Now, some people throughout history, let's be honest, have given Mary too much credit. Uh, Roman Catholics go so far as to call her a co-mediator with Christ. And so they say that if you want to be right with God, not only do you need to come through Jesus, but you also need to come through Mary. And God says in His Word, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So we don't need to give Mary too much credit. But others of us, maybe in reaction to that, may be in danger of giving her too little thought. So that we say, okay, we don't want to gaze at Mary, and so to make sure we don't gaze at her, we won't even glance at her. But we need to glance at her because that's what God invites us to do. And so I want us to consider what we can conclude from our glance at Mary and our gaze at the Lord. What are some, some takeaways? I have three takeaways for us. First, let's fill our hearts and minds with the words of God. Let's fill our hearts and minds with the words of God. J.C. Ryle said of Mary that her memory was stored with Scripture. You remember what, what Elizabeth said to her or about her. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And what Jesus said to the, to the woman who blessed the womb that bore Him, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. The consistent picture that we see of the mother of Jesus is of a woman who knew the words of God, 
who treasured them in her heart, who sought to obey Him even when it was personally costly to her. I've never given birth to a, a child, and uh, I don't suspect I ever will. Um, but I've been there. I've been there in the hospital. I've slept on the bench. Uh, I've been in the room, and I've seen what it takes. And men, it ain't easy. Some of you have been there. And so let's not underestimate her willingness to give herself to the Lord in this way. And not only that, but her, her faith that she says, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to His word. We're not married, but we can say that, right? We can say, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to His word. That's how God defines blessing. And that kind of blessing is open to anyone. So that's the first takeaway. Let's fill our hearts with the mind, our hearts and minds with the words of God. Second, let's pursue the humility that God blesses. God says over and over and over in His Word that He does not look on the proud to bless them. He looks on those who are of humble estate. J.C. Ryle again wrote of Mary. He said, she who was chosen of God to the high honor of being Messiah's mother speaks of her own low estate and acknowledges her need of a Savior. She does not let fall a word to show that she regarded herself as a sinless, immaculate person. On the contrary, she uses the language of one who has been taught by the grace of God to fill her own sins. And so far from being able to save others, she requires a Savior for her own soul. So if we walk away thinking that we need Mary's righteousness to help us be saved, we have not listened to Mary because she says, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. She reminds us of what the Bible consistently teaches that God scatters the proud and brings down the mighty while exalting the humble and filling the hungry. It is Mary's own son who will later say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. God blesses those who humble themselves before Him. So let's pursue the humility that God blesses. And then third, let's rejoice in what God has promised to do. Let's rejoice in what God has promised to do. I just want to make a very simple observation about these two women, Mary and Elizabeth. They don't, they don't say... You know what? God has, has made these incredible promises to us that, that I, Elizabeth, even though I am old in age and barren, that I'm going to give birth to a son, and that I, Mary, even though I'm a virgin, will conceive and give birth to a son who will be called Christ the Lord. They don't say, uh, God has given us these great promises, but we're going to just wait 
until, until we see them come to pass. And then we'll praise Him. Then we'll rejoice because we don't want to get our hopes up. No, what they do is they go ahead and rejoice simply at the sound of what God had said. Simply at the announcement of His promises to, to them. They don't wait until they see the fulfillment of His promises to rejoice. They don't wait until they receive the fullness of His promise to praise Him. They go ahead and praise Him even before the thing that God promised had yet come to pass. And in a similar way, you and I live in that same kind of already and not yet. We live in, a, in, in, in the in-between where God has made incredible promises to us of a Savior who has come and who is coming again. And we could choose to say, well, I'm, I'm just going to wait until I see that and then I'll rejoice and then I'll give praise to God, but it would be too late then. And so God invites us not to wait until we see the fulfillment of His promises, but even when we still find ourselves in the dark, that we can rejoice simply in what He has said. We can rejoice in His favor toward us, in His mercy toward us. We can rejoice in knowing that every promise of His Word is yes in Christ. We can rejoice in knowing that He will surely do all that He has promised to do, even though we can't yet see it. So Advent is this time of year where we're reminded of the promise that has come in the middle of darkness. And it's a promise of light, but it's a light that is just over the horizon that we can't yet see, but God has said it is surely there and it's coming. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to that word. If you're listening to the sound of my voice right now and you have never humbled yourself before the Lord, you can do that today. And He has promised that if we will humble ourselves before Him and confess our sins, that He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He has promised us that no one who comes to Him will He cast out. You can't come to Jesus and Him say, Sorry, there's no room. I won't receive you. He says, If you come to Me, I will receive you. If you humble yourself before me, I will forgive you. I will heal you. I will restore you. I will welcome you into my family. So if you've never humbled yourself before him, today is the day. And maybe, maybe you're walking with the Lord, and, and yet, you know, this year has been a dark year, hasn't it? In so many ways. Um, we see so many people around us sick, so many people dying, so many people hurting and yet, there is a light that is coming. There is a promise of one who is going to make all things new, who will wipe every tear from our eye, who will make every sad thing untrue, who will set everything right. And so we can trust Him, and we can rejoice even in the darkness. We can praise Him even when we can't yet see that light. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we thank You that by Your Spirit we can have our eyes opened to see this light shining in the darkness. 
Spirit of God, I pray that you would work and move in ways that we would not possibly ask or imagine. Spirit, that you would come alongside this word that you have inspired and uh, that you would do uh, mighty work through it. That you would draw people to repentance and to faith in Christ that you would knock our feet out from under us and humble us before the Lord. Lord, that there would be none who would stand with chest puffed out, but that we would humbly bow before you and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I pray for those who are facing trials and hardships of various kinds, who find themselves confused and perhaps lonely. in darkness, Lord, that you would remind them of your nearness to them, that you would remind them of your promises to them, and that they would look in faith to you. Lord, would you help us to respond rightly now? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.